Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 24th, 2010, and my guest is Yochai Bankler, the Berkman Professor of Entrepreneurial Legal Studies at Harvard and faculty co-director of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Yochai, welcome to Econ Talk. Nice to be with you. What is the most crucial issue facing uh, the future of the Internet? Uh, that's, uh, or two or three. It's a big question. That's a big question. Um, there are different questions with regard to uh, future of the Internet, generally, uh, uh, globally, future of particular Internet uh, communications um, here in the U.S. Um, overall, I would say that the critical question is whether in the transition to the next generation of connectivity, the net will continue to be um, as open, uh, creative, distributed in terms of institutional, cultural, economic, entrepreneurial forms uh, as it has been in the last 15 or more years, uh, or whether uh, the process of maturation will end up uh, normalizing to a slower innovation, more 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 structured and concentrated um, um, cultural and information production system. And what do you think is the threat to that um, openness that that you'd like, and that all of us would like? Um, I would look at several uh, technological um, potential change points uh, in different places. I would look at uh, uh, potential uh, legal uh, uh, change points and and uh, uh, as a result of those organizational uh, change points. Um, so so uh, there's a lot to work through, and I'll try to do it in a way that, that's um, structured. Um, so the basic driver of what makes the net so innovative and creative and fast-moving is the low cost of effective action. Experimentation adaptation, um, failure, very, very cheap failure, so that essentially the model of innovation is not um, the long-term R&D lab in three organizations that are the major players and which one of them wins, but rather thousands or tens of thousands of millions of experiments that are very, very cheap to try out um, and then cheap to uh, prototype and implement and, and fail um, and try again. So an, an example um, in that regard, it's more of an evolutionary, rapid evolutionary process so rather an, than a well-planned, engineered uh, process of, of innovation. So one example of that might be um, social networking sites, MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, and probably 10 others I've never heard of 
Let's it, start with Friendster, which was yeah. the first one, and and uh, which was the first one that you uh, that that became uh, well known and Six Apart. The, the the all of the names you've described the are winners. names that are already in the at least the second, if not the third generation of social networking. So your point is, is that we didn't know which one in advance would win. Uh, they exploded. The ones that were successful were successful because people liked them. Uh, they grew very very quickly. And um, a bunch of firms fell by the wayside, but it was relatively inexpensive. It was relatively inexpensive, and who the winner is would be the relatively surprising story. So if you were to look at MySpace, for example, there it was. It was a hit. There it was. It had a massive uh, uh, corporate buyer and backer. Um, that was the thing that should have succeeded. Facebook, where did it come from? Nowhere. Nonetheless, it came. If you look at voice over IP, Skype, where did it come from? Nowhere. It was the successful one. Um, Google, if you were looking in 99, 2000 at the search engine market, you'd said it's mature. Um, there's Yahoo, there's AltaVista, there's Lycos, Lycos there's yeah. Hotbot. Yeah. We know the players. Maybe there will be innovations, but they will come from the equivalent, today's equivalent of Bell Labs. Instead, it came from, uh, uh, from, from, from Google. So the point is, we don't even necessarily know what the next innovation is. Um, if somebody in 99 had said, build me a uh, massive data storage system that would be available to 100 million users around the world, would be uh, capable of terabits uh, of terabytes of data uh, available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and robust to attack from armed people bringing down major servers. You would say, "Give me a billion bucks in 10 years." You wouldn't say, "Give me Sean Fanning in a uh, 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 in a in a dorm room uh, building P2P uh, 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 file service." But yet, that's exactly what P2P file sharing systems are. You wouldn't know that that would be even the solution space. You certainly wouldn't know that Kazaa would become the architecture of the main voice over IP international application Skype. So, so the critical thing is that what we assumed in the 20th century, which is relatively well-capitalized major players providing much of the impetus of innovation, relatively well-capitalized government-funded uh, research providing basic science, some Schumpeterian intersection between small firms and large firms, relatively peripheral uh, social activity that can't really achieve much uh, of anything because uh, it just can't get to the level of capitalization necessary to move from sitting around shooting the breeze around the coffee table to uh, a pilot that somebody would be willing to implement um, and experiment on. So the range of experiment was much smaller. The range of failure, uh, uh, the cost of failure much higher. And the system had to be much more planned and much less evolutionary. That's not where we've been in the last uh, uh, 15 years. Except for, and that's except for what one the thing. Risk in my view. Okay, except for one thing, which I, this may leap us ahead a little bit, and you can say we, you can postpone this part to a little bit later. Certainly what you say is true, and as a Hayekian, I'm very fond of this emergent evolutionary process. But there is a capital part to this, uh, which is broadband. So if you go back to 1999 and you'd ask, "Can um, I want to put up a service that's going to have uh, billions of photographs and videos, 
it would have been much more difficult than it is today. So somebody did invest in that hardware that allows YouTube and Vimeo and Facebook and the incredible explosion of of photos and videos that are much higher, you know, bandwidth intensive. Uh, didn't that require some serious capital and, and investment? So again, there are different uh, there are different parts of the networks with different kind of of, of investments and different different potential risks of undermining the the evolutionary innovative innovation dynamic uh, that I've been talking about. Um, so different parts of the network. First of all, there's the transition from dial-up to broadband. Uh, there are certainly things that Vocal Tech didn't have in the late 90s when they did the first PC-to-PC uh, uh, widely, su- relatively successful voice over IP application. But one of them was simply that everybody or most people were still on dial-up. And so you essentially, it was very hard to, to uh, just discover people online. Uh, whereas Skype came along after there was broadband. So there's the question of capital investment in high-speed next-generation connectivity, which is the massive study I did uh, um, uh, for the FCC as part of the National Broadband Plan, and I'm happy to talk about that. To some extent, uh, uh, there, uh, the major question that's on the table is whether or not the necessity of investing large amounts of capital in the last mile can be translated into control over innovation uh, uh, practices higher up in the stack where levels of capital investment are lower. And I'm happy for us if, if you want to go into that. Well, let's, let's get into that because I think that's a central question. Let's just question. put a marker so we don't forget. Okay, and, and describe what you mean by the last mile for those people who aren't in the, in the uh, inside. So let's just not forget later on to come to uh, cloud computing and the potential risks that have to do with large-scale capital investment okay. uh, uh, in server farms, but but let's stay with this for now. Okay, carry on. Um, so uh, basically, in order to get high-speed, really high-speed connectivity to every home, you need um, uh, a wire or a cable connecting uh, uh, to the home um, um, with high-speed internet connectivity. Um, that means um, um, digging a trench, putting a physical duct, pulling actual fiber through that duct, making a hole in the wall, uh, wiring into the home. That's enormously expensive. Something like 80 to 85% of the cost of that is getting people, is paying for the people to dig the trenches and pull the holes. The electronics is relatively cheap. Um, what happened in the first generation transition was that you already had two different kinds of incumbent, incumbent local monopolies, the telephone monopolies and the cable monopolies, who already had dug the trenches or pulled the wires along the poles and already made the holes. And a lot of their upgrade had to do with electronics, which is much cheaper. These were the cable companies and the telephone companies. And so the theory was that it's relatively, that because they have relatively similar costs and because of what was called convergence, which is to say everything is now bits, voice and video, etc., you had these two companies who already, simply because of historical accident, had dug up the trenches and pulled the wires and made the holes in the homes, have relatively similar upgrade costs 
um, and they could compete with each other. And this was the foundation of competition. Um, it turned out that it wasn't 100% like that. Cable was a little cheaper earlier on. DSL was able to catch up uh, uh, because they needed to do a little more reconditioning. But overall, uh, uh, it worked reasonably well for the first uh, um, 10 years or so um, um, until we hit the point at which, in order to really increase speeds, you need to move to fiber on the telephone wire side as opposed to cable, which can still upgrade electronics. And so you're getting a big mismatch in the relative cost where going to fiber to the home costs something like 15 to 25 times as much as going to similar speeds over cable today. Um, and so you're getting an imbalance in competition there. But in any event, one of the problems even, uh, particularly in the U.S., which is the one place that we really just had competition between telco and cable and not also open access, which I'm happy to talk about, uh, is that you really at best have competition between two, which is a highly imperfect market. These are very high-cost markets. Nobody expects there to be 300 uh, providers uh, to be able to sustain the kind of capital investment and, and, and consumers' uh, uh, service. But nonetheless, three, four, five is a very different market structure than one or two. What's, what role does wireless or satellite play in this? Satellite plays no role. It basically, it was a, it was a false hope. It's not really played a significant role anywhere. This was, this was so, so, so back up a little bit. Originally, when people were thinking about this problem, there was a sense that there were multiple pathways. There was cable, there was telephone, there was uh, a broadband over power line, that is to say over the electric lines. There would be satellite, there would be terrestrial wireless, like the uh, cellular systems and, and, and y what we now know as WiMAX at the time, people weren't talking about like that. So because there were so many other pathways, there really just was competition between owners of facilities. Everything except for cable and telephone uh, or now new investment in fiber turned out to be um, uh, simply not the case. Uh, satellite, it turns out, it turned out that the problem of, the, of, of how to communicate upstream as opposed to downstream was too hard, and it's basically optimized to be a very massive broadcast system but not a two-way system. So that hasn't really played a role except in places where there really is no other alternative in which case it's a relatively high cost and relatively low speed system. Uh, terrestrial wireless, that is to say wireless that's not from satellites, um, is a good complement. It certainly plays a role in places that are very, very, very expensive uh, to wire, rural places, places in Africa, uh, uh, very far away places in, in, places in, in countries that have very low density. Amtrak uh, trains between Washington and Boston. <laughs> Washington and Boston. Uh, these I, I are see all, people using uh, those networks. So I'm sorry. I, I see people using wireless cards on the train uh, because uh, that's the only way to get on the internet, and they successfully do so. Absolutely, and and so and so wireless. Um, there are two very different ways of looking at wireless. The first one is to understand that it's an absolutely critical complement to wired connections. That is to say, one of the things that's happening is that uh, connectivity is becoming ubiquitous. Everywhere, to everyone, all the time, uh, seamlessly. You cannot do that without wireless. Wireless has to be part of the story. Um, the main question, though, is, is wireless close enough to what you can do over wired connections 
that it can be a third competitor in um, high-speed internet to the home. And that, I think, is uh, not generally considered to be plausible. The upgrade path of next-generation wires is looking at, you know, if you look at DOCSIS 3.0 today, if you look at Japan as being two to three years ahead of several of the other places, cable is 160 megabits per second from JCOM. Uh, fiber is one gigabit per second from uh, K-Opticom and KDDI. Um, so, so you're looking at speeds when you compare that, for example, to the plans for, four, for 4G wireless when it gets to there of 18 megabits per second, they're simply not the same. They're not offering the same product. One is offering, by today's standards, very high speed, but by tomorrow's standards, very slow speed, ubiquitous availability. The other is is providing uh, um, um, unfathomable speeds by today's terms without uh, mobility. And what you want is a system that essentially complements with the two of these. You want to have the highest capacity applications as far as possible into where people are in a more or less predictable, stable place, the home, the office. And you want them to also have as high capacity as possible everywhere else. And so the, the, the basic model that you see when you look at what other countries are doing in terms of, of planning for connectivity is to try to create complements between the two. You get fiber uh, uh, and or high-speed cable all the way to the home in as competitive a market structure as you can, which goes to the question of bottleneck control over the open innovation system. And you complement that with as competitive as possible a market in wireless capability. But these are complements, not substitutes. So what's the issue um, with the last mile, and what do I, why do I have to be worried about this future of innovation? What, is it, it's going great so far. We've got tremendous improvement in speed and access in the United States over the last 10, 15 years. What threatens it? Um, so, so there are two very distinct questions. There's the question that I think everybody has been focused on in the last five years or so in the U.S., net neutrality, but not so much in other countries. And there's the question that people have been focused on in other countries in the last decade, but less on net neutrality, which is open access. Um, and these are, these are two complementary, um, these are two complementary regulatory, uh, efforts to avoid the same basic, uh, uh problem. The basic problem is this. If you have a relatively um, um, weakly competitive, let alone monopolistic, but even just duopolistic, very weakly competitive market in the high capital, high to replicate portions of the network, you risk the owners of that bottleneck leveraging up to the lower cost levels and differentiating between different innovators and different sources of cultural and information production to the detriment of the less capitalized experiments and the benefit of the more capitalized experiments, which again puts you in a more 20th century model of innovation as opposed to 21st century model of innovation with very low cost, rapid prototyping, adoption, uh, failure, etc. So that's the risk. What you're trying to avoid is, is power in that bottleneck. One obvious way is to actually have competition, right? If you have a decent level of competition in the, uh, in the wired connection to the home, that's the most expensive portion of the network, then market discipline avoids um, um, uh, ways that undermine the value that users see from the net, and you get less of a risk of, um, 
of uh, discrimination uh, uh, that that's harmful to innovation between different applications. Um, that's what open access as a cluster of policies was intended to do uh, in uh, initially in the U.S. in the late 90s up until 2002 or so. Uh, uh, everywhere else in the world, uh, um, um, more or less everywhere else in the world, uh, over the course of, of the last uh, decade or so with greater and lesser uh, perfection. Uh, and the basic idea there is Yes, it's important to have uh, uh, the basic telephone incumbent competing with the basic cable incumbent if you have those facilities, and many of the best-performing countries have both kinds. You keep hearing that the U.S. is unique in the amount of cable that it has. It's not unique. We have a lot, but so do other of the best-performing countries. But in addition to that, what you have is a regulatory system that says, here's a set of core, expensive, high-cost facilities that are very hard, hard to replicate so that the price of entry into basic carriage market is um, um, so high that you only get uh, one or two players as opposed to more. And instead, what you had was um, when it was copper wire and only copper wire, it was primarily unbundling and bitstream, particular regulations that basically said you, someone who wants to provide internet. So this was AT&T before they were bought by SBC in the U.S. or Earthlink under some circumstances, or at the time there was also COVID, would come in and say, I'm going to compete locally uh, uh, in providing internet service. I'm going to buy my electronics. I'm going to buy the highest-end electronics and put them in the neighborhood. But then I'm going to be able to buy the most expensive part, the copper loop and... Uh, um, and uh, buy that at a regulated rate and be able to compete with whoever was it was, SBC or Verizon in the local loop, uh, as another competitor. So that's, for example, what happened in Finland is exactly the, the trajectory the U.S. was going on in the early 2000s, where Telesonera, which was the incumbent long-distance carrier, entered into local competition with Elisa and the Finet Group uh, uh, components, who were the, lo the incumbent local. There was very similar market structure there, using open access, Telesonera came, using unbundling, Telesonera came and became essentially the third competitor uh, in many of these places. AT&T was trying to do the same thing in the early 2000s. After it lost the regulatory battle, it was bought by SBC, and you didn't have that option of a third player anymore uh, uh, in these markets. And MCI was bought at the same time by Verizon, again, because there was no option for entry for, for these uh, long-distance players into the local markets. Um, so that's the so 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 the the first line defense against control over the last mile, leveraging up into making innovation and experimentation more expensive in uh, uh, in the network itself uh, is competition. And the study that we did, looking at a lot of countries, suggested that uh, the most successful uh, 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 countries in terms of speeds and prices, um, um, and as a consequence, penetration, um, uh, had some combination of both competition between cable and incumbent telephone companies, as well as usually one to three uh, um, entrants, some of whom were entrepreneurial entrants, like SoftBank in Japan, uh, Free in, in uh, uh, France, uh, Tele2 in, in, in Sweden, Glocalnet in, 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 uh, Nor in, in um, Denmark, 
uh, and some were uh, incumbents, like Telesonera in Finland, like Pelennor entering uh, the Swedish and Danish markets um, um, uh, in um, uh, in in um, Scandinavia. So, what's what's the policy implication for that for the U.S.? Yeah, um, it's good. Yeah, competition's good, right? So, what's stopping competition now that is occurring elsewhere in the world that you think we need a policy solution for? Um, I think we need to uh, incorporate some model of open access in the next generation transition to the local loop uh, in the U.S. Um, and, and I'm cautious about when I, about it when I say some model of open access because. Um, the next generation is not about copper loops. It's not about translating one-to-one uh, UNIP or whatever other words we can throw around from the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, which immediately is what comes to mind to people when you say open access here because that's the last time we experimented with it. Um, new networks uh, uh, require different solutions. There's a lot of variation. Um, Ofcom has a very interesting study from three or four months ago looking specifically at how you translate what unbundling was in the copper wire to a particular architecture of fiber networks, GPON, which is what Verizon has, and shows seven different strategies with, with advantages and disadvantages to how you might do that in GPON. Um, the Netherlands just implemented a general open access requirement across all networks, but then didn't actually, uh, but then stepped in and said, you know what, that's what you need to do if you don't cooperate, but let's sit down with KPN, the incumbent, with uh, Fiber, the, the, uh, the, the second largest uh, uh, commercial real estate uh, company in the Netherlands. Here's a joint venture that you two are building to build fiber as essentially a um, um, a uh, commercial real estate model. Let's work together in your business plan, which is what essentially the, the Dutch uh, regulator did, and set rates ba- built out of your uh, business plan that would allow you to build an open access network, that KPN will be the anchor tenant, and all sorts of other players uh, uh, who are uh, in the Netherlands will be secondary tenants, but it's in a joint venture, it's separate, it's off the books of KPN, the returns and risks are utility-like returns and risks, the kind of money is the kind of money that would put and, and diversify itself into utilities rather than the kind of money that goes into internet. And let's not bind up the costs of trenching and putting ducts with the costs of high-end innovative internet, either in terms of risk or in terms of reward. But I've gotten lost here. So I think about the United States the two things you've seen you're focusing on are open access and unbundling. So explain what those mean in practical terms for a regulatory framework in the United States. Um, so first of all, they're not two separate things. Open, unbundling is, is, is one particular application of open access. Open access is the family of solutions. Okay. Um, and so let me just talk about that. Go ahead. Um, as a practical matter, it would mean a fairly long, I would think, uh, um, study process of um, what the most appropriate uh, uh, um, rules would be to require whoever owns a 
trench or a duct to uh, offer it under uh, uh, non-discriminatory terms to anyone else who wants to provide service. So that's net neutrality, essentially. No, no, no. no, no. Net neutrality is is higher up in the stack. Net neutrality already. Net neutrality is stacks on top of open access. Open access means there's that you, the consumer, can actually buy your internet service from more than the companies that own the, the, the wires. Okay. Net neutrality means, irrespective of whether that's true or not, whoever sells you your internet service can't discriminate between applications, for example, or between data streams of similar uh, type, uh, or be- essentially between packets. So as a, as a private property guy, which is what I am, and I'm sure you are in some dimension, uh, how do you square that with the – you're basically converting the past investments that innovators have made into a utility, into a, the equivalent of the grid, right? You're saying you have to give access to all comers at a fixed price, which would have to, I assume, be regulated. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't have any meaning, Right. And that's what you're talking about when you say we'd have to make a careful study of of what pricing and other regulatory framework would be necessary? Um, I'm saying that just as we have uh, – just as we did with telephone companies for uh, a century, uh, we would have um, – we would have private investment in utility-like networks that would then have to uh, um, sell capacity at regulated rates to competitors, yes. So that that's a controversial idea. Some people like it a lot, and some people don't. So help me out here on a philosophical level. As an outsider who doesn't know the details of packets and copper and all the things that are make this a complex, very complex field. I see two people on different sides of an issue. I see you and and colleagues on one side who think that we have to increase the regulatory environment to make sure that bad things don't happen. And there's equally intelligent, perhaps not quite as intelligent, but quite intelligent people on the other side who say, no, 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 that's a horrible mistake. It's going to lead to regulatory capture. It's going to stifle innovation. Both groups claim that unless their preferred policy outcome is put in place, the future of the Internet is in trouble. So how is an outsider to – and by the way, of course, both sides tend to have a lot of backing financially from players who have a stake in this. Um, What is – those of us who are not in the trenches, to use a bad word we've been talking about, what are we supposed to think about in terms of what, what we should want? So, um, you know, I, 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 uh, there are advantages of, of, of being on a podcast and on a, on in a context with a, with an, with an audience who, the, uh, of, of people who are already very, uh, very intelligent and very able to, uh, think through issues. I think th- th- there's no magic, uh, want to wave, um, and it's not a question of trust and belief. It's a question of trying to read through the evidence. Um, what we did, to, what we tried to do in our study, was provide a first of all a broad literature review to look at what's available. 
Um, and I think, as it turns out, the evidence uh, um, that was the, the baseline position in the U.S., I'd say, up until a year ago for, for the last five years or so, has been almost uh, uh, generally that uh, uh, open access is a disproven uh, uh, theory. It turns out that the evidence uh, in favor of that is, is very uh, ambiguous, uh, and you basically have to go and, and, and read uh, analyses uh, in both directions and, and, and see which of them are more powerful. I think there's a lot of, um, uh, I think there's a lot of industry-funded work. We found, for example, on the question, one of the things people keep saying is um, if, you, uh, uh, if you have open access, you'll undermine investment, or if you have open access, you'll improve investment. Well, we found that something like uh, uh, over half of the studies that were trying to look at this were industry-funded. They were roughly equally shared between those that were uh, funded by industry yeah. on one side or the other. Sure. And they came out more or less uh, each one in the direction. But then you have to go and look, okay, what, is, what studies aren't industry-funded? Where are they going? What other countries uh, are looking at? You have to look at the evidence. The truth is, if the position that open access didn't work were correct, then the U.S. was poised in the best possible position in 2001. We were the ones who had cable at more than 50% of the overall market. We were the ones that had the regulatory environment that allowed uh, everyone to just do uh, uh, whatever, uh, uh, every company to control its own infrastructure. We had the existing infrastructure, we were the leaders, and we had the regulatory environment that, that built on uh, existing investments uh, and didn't require access. By all of the predictions of the people who say that open access will ruin the Internet, a decade later, we should have been further ahead of everyone on speeds, further ahead of everyone on prices, further ahead of everyone on penetration. Instead, we fell from fourth in penetration to 15th. We fell from first in prices to maybe 18th or 19th. That has to count for something. These well, are natural experiments occurring in the world. Now, yeah, but a lot of people dispute those findings, right? They tell they'll they'll say that there's reasons that those prices are distorted. It doesn't account, take account of the investments that were made publicly that distorted the prices. There's always views on each side, right? Even empirically, I'm not going to say that any, that doesn't mean you can't find the truth, but it seems to me this is a very very difficult issue. I mean, you think about broadband access to the United States is in the 65 to 70 percent range. We're a massively large geographic entity. We have large rural populations. That makes us very different. So it's always going to be easy to, to say that, that there's something special about the United States and it's hard to control for those factors. So you know, when, I, when I look at this, again, as an outsider, just as an as a applied economist, I, I, I tend to fall back on first principles. And, and my worry, even though I – think we live in a pretty good world right now. It obviously could be better. My worry is that usually when government gets deeply involved in something, at least in the United States, it doesn't serve the customer. It serves the corporation. Uh, and so I'm worried that no matter which solution it, that the FCC imposes, which is, which is going to be uh, – you know, as right now, looks like a fight between different large corporations. Some set of large corporations is going to win, and not the consumer. The consumer rarely wins. You know, I look at the current healthcare debate, which we just finished, at least for now, and um, a lot of Americans think that assume that the insurance companies got you know got their uh, 
got their comeuppance now that we have health care reform. But I'm, I guarantee you the insurance companies are going to get really rich from health care reform. That's how it usually works, unfortunately. So reassure me that this process of, of a heavier role for, the, say, the FCC is going to serve me rather than Google, Verizon, Comcast, et cetera. So uh, uh, I'm a little baffled by the metaphor because is the theory that if insurance companies end up getting rich from healthcare reform, it isn't also the case. It can't also be the case that uh, um, uh, uh, consumers will get better health insurance, better health coverage, and better health. Uh, uh, that, that necessarily there's a there's a a lose a win lose situation between companies. And consumers, it's entirely possible that with the right set of uh, uh, institutional framework, you'll set up a competitive dynamic that some companies would lose. Right? Having a monopoly is a great. I mean, monopoly rents are great to have if you're the monopolist. Some companies will lose. Other companies will gain, and consumers will gain in the process. That's the idea of setting up a competitive market. I have no reason to think that. No, I agree with you. Of course, the the question is whether the regulator, under the political influence of contributions from corporations is going to set up a competitive market. Why would they? They rarely do. So everything is relative to the baseline. Good point. At the moment, we have a highly non-competitive market driven by um, uh, a regulator that made a set of choices that I have to say, in 2002, 2003, um, they weren't based on evidence because there was practically no evidence available at the time. But they were at least plausible if you looked at Canada and the U.S. as, as uh, two of the best-performing uh, countries uh, that had very similar market structures, um, um, and, and both of them could plausibly support the decisions that the FCC began to make in, two, in, in late 2001 and early 2002. Um, but the baseline is already one in which you have a very strong set of incumbents spending an enormous amount of uh, money on uh, lobbying, but also on research to, to create, to generate the evidence that purportedly shows that this works. Uh, so the question is, um, how much worse could you do by a system that would uh, create conditions where you would have, instead of one to two players, three to five players. And the thing that needs to be remembered is that we are currently, based on the best acknowledged, not refuted evidence, on a trajectory to having, uh, some people will tell you 75%, others will tell you 85% of the company, but a very large uh, part of the country uh, will have uh, next generation speeds uh, under monopoly, essentially cable, because of the different uh, uh, cost of uh, fiber to the home versus cable upgrades and the fact that uh, cable upgrades simply leave fiber to the node, which is what, uh, uh, what, what uh, essentially the DSL, which is what AT&T and Quest are doing uh, in the dust. So essentially we're moving to monopoly. Now, it, I completely buy the idea that uh, uh, regulators are not uh, pristine um, uh, public servants, uh, and, and this gets particularly difficult in the U.S., that has such a complicated relationship with civil servants, and we tend to call them bureaucrats instead of civil servants, and we tend to think of it as transitional, uh, um, as transitional positions as opposed to lifetime careers. I, I completely accept that different countries have different uh, sociological structures to their regulatory environments. 
which, by the way, is not about first principles. I think these are all mm-hmm. empirical questions that require detailed institutional analysis and not first principles, because the, the, the level of variation is very high. That's all of point. that said, if there's an intervention that can set us up to have markets of three to five competitors, as opposed to markets of one to two, chances are, even though there will be companies that will, be, that will make money, consumers will be better off. If you're, tra- if you're talking first principles, which as I said, you have to be cautious about, but if you're talking first principles, an intervention, however uh, potentially distorted or limited or imperfect, that gets us to three to five competitors will improve consumer welfare over one that has a very clear and most likely trajectory to mostly monopoly and to some extent duopoly markets. I guess my only other comment on that, except that argument, I guess the only argument I'd have is that most of the time, I guess all of the time in technology markets in my lifetime, the great monopolist who threatened to ruin the world turned out not to be much of a monopolist after all. So in my lifetime, it's, it was IBM in the 60s and 70s that was going to destroy the world, and it was Microsoft, now it's Google, and yet somehow competition always comes from an unexpected source. So perhaps this time would be different, perhaps nothing could threaten the cable monopoly that would uh, make it dangerous for them to gain power, but I don't know. Um, so uh, I'd like to push back just a little bit in the sense that um, uh, do you see telephone as having uh, changed its uh, uh, market structure at the local level uh, independent of regulation or, or for that matter, uh, cable? Either one of those uh, shifted for, away from monopoly uh, without some form of a, of a regulatory intervention? Well, the phone's complicated, right? Because we had a highly regulated market. Um, so to say that we have more choice now in local because we broke that market up, we could have – that worked, but we could have just gotten rid of – there's other ways to get there from here, right? We could have not tried to steer it from the top down, which again is what I worry about in this same situation here. Uh, rather than letting some competition emerge, we made it, we made it very difficult. The cell phone market – which is highly regulated still, is um, pretty competitive. It's, you know, it's got some problems, obviously, but it's a lot pleasant, more pleasant life than it was 25 years ago. Undoubtedly more pleasant life, but it's very hard to separate out uh, how much of that is technology and basically the nature of things. I mean, the, the, the point that I was trying to make is for any given market, whether or not it is likely that any monop- any given monopoly uh, or high le- or any given level of concentration is temporary and whether it will be superseded depends on the relative stability of the technology and the relative uh, cost of entry um, and the profitability and the profitability of the of the incumbent which encourages entrants to take it away um that really uh, uh, assumes away some costs that just don't get much cheaper with technology, like labor costs and trenching costs, right? It, this, this works when you're talking about things like electronics. Um, you don't have, uh, uh, if you look at, at efforts to make uh, uh, electricity markets more efficient, 
you can make some parts of the market uh, function uh, more like markets, but that requires a certain kind of, of regulation of the transmission side because it's so expensive to replicate right. the, uh, the last mile. The, the point here is not that there's a simple switch, either regulation or market. Given the particular uh, 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 capital costs of any given component and the degree to which they're susceptible to technological change, uh, that's what sets your conditions. It, and, and I think exactly what happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, was that people believed that the technological um, uh, constraint on uh, the ability to compete in markets uh, 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 in delivering the last mile of connectivity uh, had gone away because cable was there, because telephone was there, because electric wires were there, because satellite and, and wireless uh, were there. And what I'm saying is that when we look back 10 years with the experience from the U.S., with the experience from elsewhere in the world, that technological assumption that there was an easy way to get around the fact that you simply needed to pay human beings to dig holes uh, um, as a major, major cost that meant that you couldn't recover in any kind of time frame that people would care to, 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 um, um, to invest in. You couldn't recover with less than, say, four. Now, if people look at fiber, people in Europe are mostly looking at something like 45% of the market um, uh, to, uh, to cover within seven years or so the investments into fiber. That happens to be a relatively low estimate based on, 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 on the Dutch market, which is a little cheaper, uh, 20% well, maybe cheaper. Let's, I want to I get to sharing and yeah. open source. So let's, let's – it's been very interesting and very uh, educational, uh, especially for this outsider. Can we finish up what point you wanted to make early on on cloud computing and then let's turn to – to open source and other. Let's just talk about open source. The basic point about about cloud computing and and about uh, uh, it, which is one source of threat and about um, handhelds, which is another source of threat, is the concern that um, you'll get very very high capital cost um, uh, infrastructure in the network um, that will, on one hand, make it very cheap to scale up capacity, and in that regard may well increase this trend. But on the other hand, if all you have are two or three companies at most without whose services you can't really set up a web-based interface, uh, and to the extent that those companies start leveraging that position, that could be one way that, that, that that's one long-term risk. Uh, I, I, I don't see it actually going in that direction now, but that's potentially one to, what, because so much of what made the net uh, uh, creative was the general purpose PC at its end and its end-to-end -end architecture. Because we're seeing so much move into the cloud now, that's one potential threat. And the other potential threat is the fact that the handheld based on the wireless network, the iPhone essentially more than anything else, is coming to occupy much of computation, you're moving towards a more controlled infrastructure. And again, it, it, we can spend half an hour on whether that's a false risk or not because Apple has made it develop a kit open and there are uh, so many applications and it's got its own creative model 
but it's not quite the internet model. It's much more controlled and proprietary. And if the trajectory of these devices ends up coming from the history of the proprietary devices running on proprietary networks and they displace the PC, or if the small PC ends up displacing to some extent the handheld, that that's a potential long-term question. Uh, Isn't that great? Uh, question. I'm confused. I, it just seems wonderful to me. I mean, I'm I'm a Kindle owner right now. The Kindle is a great device. It's I've got a second I have a first and second generation Kindle. The second one's much better. Uh it's cheaper. It works better. It has more books available. The iPad is coming soon in about 3 weeks, 2 weeks. It's going to put competitive pressure on the Kindle and there's the Sony e-reader. They're all going to strike back. They're going to try. Apple's really good. They'll probably they might win. They might dominate for a while. They might dominate for 20, 30 years. It would be unheard of in technology, but it could happen. Isn't that good? What's to worry? First of all, yes, it is good. So I'm thrilled to see these things compete with each other. And by the way, there's a Kindle app now for the iPad so that my library of Kindle books is going to be available to me if I buy an iPad, which is phenomenal. Assuming, assuming that the licensing models permit it. True. Good point. And that's part of the issue. Right. That part of the issue is the uh, is is, and this goes much higher up in the stack. Obviously, the the one set of barriers to to creativity online is the is the business royalties. model yeah, and, the and licensing yeah. constraints that 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 uh, um, content owners are trying to place on it. Sure. But that's presumably for a different conversation. Why are you? Let's go back to your worry. What is worrisome? You mean because the Apple iPad is not as open an environment as the cloud, say? As the PC. Yeah, well, that's a, market, that's a market response. I don't, it doesn't bother me. Um, that assumes that a market response always necessarily incorporates all externalities, which is not entirely clear, right? The no, fact it's not that, true. Uh, the fact it that doesn't. the iPhone, I'm sorry? <laughs> it doesn't, you're right. It, uh, and so, and, and innovation is a classic public good, classic externality um, uh, from, a, from, a, from a consumer perspective. Uh, deciding to prefer the fantastic interface of the iPhone uh, to the long-term innovation. Uh, you wouldn't in a million years anticipate consumers making buying decisions today, incorporating the long-term value of a more innovative platform, and, and there's, no, there's no reason for them to do it. It doesn't mean that no, you don't worry true. about it in terms of long-term innovation, growth, and welfare. That's well, a concern. Okay, well, we've got about 10 minutes left. Let, let's turn to another issue you've written widely on that, that is also extremely interesting, and we've visited here on the topic before on EconTalk, which is uh, you have a nice phrase for it. What Wikipedia and what other Linux and other um, – it's, it's a new form of cooperation. Talk about that and what you think its potential is to grow beyond what it is now because right now it's a beautiful thing. The crowdsourcing of and creation of Wikipedia and other other uh, and software is it? Have we seen the best of it? Is there more to come? So, yes, I've I've, I've written a lot about peer production and about uh, and about distributed uh, uh, or social production and distributed innovation. Um, uh, have we seen uh, the best of it? I doubt it. Um, uh, when you say uh, it's a little bit of software and a little bit of um, um, uh, and a little bit of Wikipedia. It sounds as though you think of it as currently having relatively limited um, 
effect or utility. And there, I'd, 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 well, I I'd see, like – The reason I'm, I say that is I see lots of people who still make lots of money working in traditional business models. And that's – so I'm curious whether you think that's a, being threatened by these – by the peer production or it's going to be enhanced – no, so so in some specific industries for some specific product, you certainly will see displacement by uh, uh, by peer production uh, systems. Um, you know, Encarta is out of business. Uh, Eleven years ago, Information Rules was opened as a book with Encarta as the great threat to Britannica. In, uh, the, the major change that the information network information economy makes is Encarta challenges Britannica. It turns right. out yeah. not to be the case. Yeah. Um, so, so clearly there are places where there's just straight competition um, uh, and uh, um, essentially better, cheaper uh, service uh, replacing uh, the other. Um, you know, five years ago, uh, uh, weblogs, uh, uh, Jason Calacanis tried to hire away the, dig- the top diggers um, to uh, to get weblogs to be uh, at the top of uh, 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 those sites, and it turns out Dig is still ahead. Um, so, so there's clearly competition on the discrete uh, uh, um, structures. If you look at uh, web server software, Apache has withstood uh, uh, attacks from uh, Microsoft for uh, for for. 15 years now through two booms and two uh, through hmm. two busts and two booms yeah um, so uh, so clearly there's an important component of the information economy that is continuously dependent on uh, social production um, uh, most scripting today is Perlin PHP it's not ActiveX uh, so it plays a very, very important basic role in the software environment alongside, and sometimes in competition with and replacing, as in the case of web service software, sometimes alongside. I'd say proprietary software on the desktop has uh, more or less uh, um, succeeded in fending off um, uh, uh, free software, uh, but not in the network. In the network, mostly it's the other way around. I suspect that has a lot to do with how easy or hard it is to focus on usability yeah. in distributed, non-person-to-person models. Yeah. Wikipedia certainly has played that role. But I actually see the thing, again, partly in competition and partly in, in uh, as compliments. So, so there's a major debate today about uh, the future of journalism. Um, clearly, there are some kinds of journalism against which there's substantial uh, competition from uh, distributed social production. A lot of it is is um, individuals, individual bloggers, but a lot of it is also collaborative. Things like Newsfine, things like more that are like party presses, like the Daily Cost or or Town Hall. Um, but what you get instead is a media environment that's a combination of, of a greater diversity of styles of production. So you have the global newspapers that have many more advertising imprints, like the New York Times or the BBC or, or the Guardian that has more U.S. Uh, uh, eyeballs now, I think, than, than U.K., I'm not quite sure. Um, so that's one tier. And you still have hyper-local papers that may or may not use their online to extend their uh, position. But, and you have mid-level papers that are really suffering and really hurting. 
At the same time, you're getting these models like uh, uh, the Huffington Post or Talking Points Memo that are becoming sort of intermediate-level commercial entities that are online only that put some of their costs on contributors and some of their costs on in-house and rely on some combination of, of advertising and merchandising uh, to support them. Uh, so what you're seeing is is a, not a complete displacement, but a shifting of the set of strategies that are available with a bigger role for people doing some of the work, uh, um, essentially blurring the line between production and consumption. And what used to be consumption is becoming a much more active uh, production model. Um, and at the same time, you're also seeing uh, smaller scale, more professional things, um, um, more effective, um, um, more effective nonprofits like Sunlight Foundation uh, building systems for purposes of um, uh, of, of uh, government transparency and, and government oversight by citizens. Um, so, so essentially, what if, if, as I'm looking at the trajectory that's been happening and looking forward, it's not so much that suddenly we'll all stop working in traditional businesses and 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 uh, uh, start blogging Wikipedia articles, <laughs> yeah. but rather that what we'll see is that in the information economy, which is a large part of what we care about, there'll be a greater diversity of models, and for some companies doing business in some ways, that'll mean that they're business model is dead and they have to adjust. And for other companies, that'll mean that their paid staff can be smaller if they know how to uh, uh, leverage the social production aspect. And they'll deliver a combination of output, say the news, but also process participation in making the news and generating opinion. And so you'll see businesses shifting towards creating platforms for social production as part of the story. Uh, of what they're doing. Video, instead of just being about video delivery platforms, will be about uh, 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 building a platform for collaborative video uh, editing, like Kaltura. Um, that's the shift that you're seeing. It's not as though tomorrow people will stop needing to keep body and soul together and find ways to make things that people want and we are willing to pay money for. But the range of strategies of production will change to accommodate uh, a new set of practices that are competing with some old models and are new business opportunities for newer models. Sounds like a good future to me. I know it, I wor- like it. it worries a lot of people. You know, It's interesting, given our previous discussion, some people worry that it's going to create either monopolies or these silos of people with one viewpoint only consuming the things that they agree with or disagree with because they want to get mad. And um, again, I think a lot of things will emerge, as you say, integrating and mixing models that we can't anticipate. I think that's true. My guest today has been Yochai Bankler. Yochai, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.